number of complaints against Pittsburgh police officers has gone down. The number of lawsuits against Pittsburgh police officers has gone down. Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto defended his administration's record on police reform at a debate this week, but one of his opponents, State Representative Ed Ganey, pushed back. 63% of arrests is African American. That's just over-policing in neighborhoods and we can change that. We'll also look at the mechanics behind the state's vaccine distribution plan and what an affordable housing case that's before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court would mean for Pittsburgh. It's Friday, April 16th, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. WESA co-hosted a mayoral debate with the Pittsburgh Black Media Federation on Tuesday. Our government and accountability editor, Chris Potter, was one of the moderators and joins me now. Hi, Chris. Hello, Liz. Can you set this up for us? Who was at the debate? Well, all four of the Democratic candidates whose names will be appearing on the uh, May 18th primary ballot were there. So that's obviously uh, incumbent mayor Bill Peduto, who's seeking his third term, state representative Ed Ganey, retired police officer Tony Moreno, and uh, Oakland resident Mike Thompson. And it's worth noting for any listener who might be new to Pittsburgh, the primary basically is the election So we are expecting that whoever wins the primary will be Pittsburgh's next mayor. Now, we heard Peduto and Ganey talk about police reform earlier, but you also asked them both a broader question about whether Pittsburgh is livable and accessible for everyone, particularly black residents. What did they say? Well, you know, nobody contests um, that there are very different experiences for residents in Pittsburgh based on race. Uh, Mr. Peduto himself, uh, although he's seeking re-election, uh, typically starts these um, debates and speeches by sort of acknowledging that, look, there are sort of two Pittsburghs existing side by side. Uh, a Pittsburgh that, you know, you read about uh, in national magazine stories, that's the most livable city, which is largely for white people, younger folks, more affluent folks. And then there's the second Pittsburgh uh, for black residents here. So there's a sort of a broad consensus about that. The debate really sort of turns on what to do about that and what success Mr. Peduto has at trying to sort of bring those those two Pittsburghs together. We sort of had an interesting discussion on Tuesday night, partly about that and the question about, you know, we've, we've lost several thousand African-American residents in the city of Pittsburgh over the past couple of years. And there's a sort of spirited debate on why that's happening. In some cases, it's a matter of gentrification. Ed Ganey will say, you know, that, look, in a lot of these communities, East Liberty and, and Lawrenceville in particular, the black population in those neighborhoods is simply cratered, even as they have sort of had a resurgent population largely fueled by a growth in uh, white uh, households 20 to 30, you know, in the 20 to 30 year old range. Mr. Peduto uh, has said before and said again on Tuesday night, a lot of what's going on here, yes, gentrification is real, but what we're also seeing is what he's calling black flight. The idea that in some communities, there's not a surplus of development, but black families are moving away, often outside the city to nearby communities like uh, Penn Hills and places like that because of, uh, he'll say, because of the school system, because they feel the neighborhoods are safer. And so there's this, this sort of interesting tension that's been set up here, which is, what problems, you know, which of these problems really most need solving? Gentrification is clearly an issue in some places, but, you know, more broadly, Mr. Peduto will say there are neighborhoods, Belts, Hoover, Knoxville, places like that, we don't talk about a lot. We certainly don't see a lot of development going on, but people are moving away from. So what do we do for those communities? And so we, we really do have this this debate here, not just about sort of two Pittsburghs, but, but about very different ways of sort of looking at the problem of the sort of disappearing black population from the city of Pittsburgh. 
you mentioned gentrification a couple of times and, and affordable housing is sort of the other side of that coin. And that's really shaping up to be another key issue in this race. Can you explain why it's taking such a front and center role yeah, I mean, I think a few, think a few things are going on. One is, you know, as long as I started out as a reporter about 25 years ago, and at that time, you know, this the issue that was on the top of everybody's mind was, you know, how do we hold on to our young people and these college-educated people that are leaving because after the collapse of Big Steel, there's nothing here. And, you know, even a decade or two later, the city was really kind of reeling from the impact of the collapse of heavy manufacturing in, in, in the Pittsburgh area. We're now kind of a couple decades past that. And I think, although there are still some legacies that we're dealing with, there are some legacy costs. You know, I, I think we're at a point where there's enough, clearly there's enough prosperity going around that we're now sort of asking these questions about how to divide that up, how, to, how everybody can kind of share in that. And I think that that's a, that's a question that some of, as some of the kind of existential doubts about whether Pittsburgh had any kind of future at all, as those doubts have receded, now's the questions are, are kind of surfacing, well, who shares in that future? Who gets to shape that future? Affordable housing is clearly a part of that. I'll say, too, that part of what's going on here, and this came up uh, at the debate as well, is we talk about this stuff a lot now, but some of the some of the mechanisms that have caused this kind of dearth in affordable housing, especially in places like East Liberty, these are trends that are a couple decades old. They, they, they predate Mr. Peduto. Mr. Ganey was challenged by two of the other candidates in the race about his own role in some of these things. He had previously to becoming a state representative, had worked in as a sort of community development person for former mayor. Tom Murphy and Luke Ravenstahl, and he was kind of called to account for the fate of a affordable housing project, a federally subsidized project in East Liberty that was basically demolished almost 20 years ago. Um, and I think it just kind of reflects, you know, we, t- we talk a lot about Penn Plaza in particular in East Liberty, which is a f- kind of the last holdout of a sort of affordable renting opportunities in that area. But part of the reason that that was such a hot button issue was because several other communities that were affordable in the near vicinity had already been wiped out. Um, and so we're kind of dealing now with a legacy of 20, 30 years of decisions and choices that got made. And now I think people are sort of waking up and saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, what have we got? What's happening here? And this isn't just a Pittsburgh problem. It's a problem for a lot of cities all across the country, um, which is really just kind of like, who who are we building for? And what are we doing to help, help folks who maybe are not doing so well in a service-centered economy? In the old days, you could send people could go to the mill and without you know it's just a high school degree, and and that is a much trickier and get a good living wage. It's a much trickier proposition now. I have to make a plug here for another WESA podcast that explored a lot of the issues um, that you're talking about in terms of housing and land use. So anyone who's interested should check out um, the podcast by Margaret J. Krause called Land and Power Centers Around That Story of Penn Plaza, also looks at the Lower Hill and the legacy of decisions made decades before and how they're affecting residents today. Now I want to pivot uh, a little bit because Mayor Peduto and Representative Ganey both have experience holding public office, but the other two candidates, Thompson and Moreno, they don't. Did they address that at all? And, And what reasons did they give as to why voters should trust them? Yeah, it was kind of the last question we asked, which is nobody had ever heard of you before uh, this mayoral contest. You've never held elected office before, and now you're running for the top post in the city of Pittsburgh. 
you know, why should we trust you with that? Uh, Mr. Moreno, I don't know that his answer is going to satisfy some folks. Uh, you know, he said he he uh, believes that his belief in God is one reason that you know makes him a, a, a trustworthy person that that we should rely on. He he is of course also a retired police officer, um, so he can point to him before that a combat veteran. So you know, I, I think you make a case that uh, he has spent his life in one way or another, kind of serving the public good. Mr. Thompson points out that he of the candidates um, running, he is the only one who rents which again kind of speaks to these concerns about sort of affordability and the concerns of renters, um, which have become more pressing in recent years. He also has sort of an interesting life story. You know, he had been very sick and actually had a, a portion of his liver donated to him. And, uh, you know, I, I think he would kind of say, somebody kind of trusted me with their liver, trust me with your vote. So if you really are looking for somebody who has a depth of administrative experience, I'm not sure that answer satisfies you either. But clearly an animating force throughout this entire campaign is, and not just this campaign, but a lot of others we've seen in recent years, is a sort of concern that the people who are most steeped in governance, the folks who were most accustomed to having make the decisions, have somehow lost touch with us. And so you have a candidate like Tony Moreno say, hey, both Bill Peduto and Ed Ganey are sort of acting hand in hand. Ed Ganey serves on the URA board, the city's chief development agency. He's an appointee of Bill Peduto. And, you know, Mr. Moreno is going to say, if you don't like where we're at, it's not one of these guys or the other. It's both of them together. And that's really their pitch, I think, is that they are kind of the outside candidates who are willing to shake up business as usual. And we've got the entire debate in our podcast feed right now, so you can listen to the whole thing. Chris, thanks for talking with us. Hey, thanks for having me. We'll be right back after a quick break. Inbox Edition is the daily newsletter that starts your day with stories about Pittsburgh from the WESA newsroom. You can sign up at wesa.fm slash inbox edition. We're now joined by general assignment reporter Kylie Kaczynski. Hi, Kylie. Hey, Liz. So even though your job is to cover a variety of topics, sort of anything that comes up lately, you've been pretty focused on one big, big story. What is that? That's right. I've been spending a fair bit of time digging into, uh, I guess, the logistics of the vaccine distribution here locally and in Pennsylvania. There was a lot to look at this week with all adults becoming eligible on the 13th and then one of the three vaccines being put on pause by the FDA and the CDC. And meanwhile, case counts are still on the rise despite more people becoming eligible to get jabbed. What did the state say about why they decided to move up the timeline for making all adults eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine? Up until now, it's been an issue of demand outpacing supply, and now it seems like supply is outpacing demand. So uh, opening this up to everybody will solve some issues we've been seeing of open appointments sitting unclaimed uh, different providers um, across the state. So we'll come back to some of the implications of the Johnson & Johnson news that you um, referred to, but you've spent a lot of time looking into the process for how vaccines are allocated. What have you learned? I've learned that distributing a vaccine through a quasi-socialized medicine system when the infrastructure for that system does not exist is very complicated. It was difficult to piece together how vaccines get from manufacturer to our arms and who's in charge of funneling supply where and how. Um, It was hard to get information from the state health department and some smaller providers have had to sort of piece together systems that probably wouldn't have existed if the U.S. wasn't currently in the process of one of, if not the biggest vaccination campaign in our country's history. So can you talk about how decisions are made about where the vaccine goes, like in terms of to which states and then to which providers in those states? 
Yeah, basically the federal government allocates X supply to the state, X supply to federal pharmacy partners like CVS and Walgreens, and X supply to federally qualified health centers. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says the bulk of the supply goes to jurisdictions, but data about how much goes to the other two streams is either not publicized or very difficult to find. Uh, The federal government allocates supply to states based on population over the age of 18. And then there's a whole process for providers requesting supply, finding out how much of that request they'll get, tracking deliveries, etc. It's a very complicated symphony that we have tried to lay out for readers and listeners on our website at WESA.FM. The shots that are available at like CVS, uh, Walgreens, Rite Aid, that is totally separate from the state allocations, which is really the only data that's publicly available, right? That's right. So in Pennsylvania, the federal pharmacy partners are CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, and Topco, which is the pharmacy found in Giant Eagles. Um, And so the the federal government controls how much gets to those providers and when, um, and the state doesn't really have a say in that. What are providers saying now that everyone 16 or older can get vaccinated? I mean, is the demand just crushing them? How is this, this ad hoc system holding up? I haven't been able to talk directly with too many providers this week prior to this conversation, but we can put a few clues together about the impact of opening up availability to the general population. UPMC at its drive-through clinic at the Pittsburgh Mills Mall in Terenum allowed walk-ins, I guess drive-ins, either way you didn't need an appointment, and that's indicative of the wide availability of time slots and supply. I checked the websites of a few local pharmacies before talking with you, and there are several instances of next-day appointments open and even some same-day. And I've also talked with a woman who manages a local Facebook group that helps people find appointments. And she had been calling for the state to open this up to everyone for more than a week because of appointments just seemingly sitting empty. And she said that the moved update hasn't done too much to solve this issue. And it could be a matter of people not knowing that the open availability date got moved up or we could be witnessing some vaccine hesitancy. I want to touch on another story you reported this week on the implications of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine being put on hold amidst concerns of blood clotting in a very small number of patients. You look specifically at county jails because incarcerated people are one of the groups that are more likely to receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What did you find? Yeah, the Johnson & Johnson shot had so far been reserved for targeted campaigns in Pennsylvania, like teachers and agriculture workers. But once that vaccine got into the hands of more providers, county jails, like specifically the one in Washington County, got to work trying to organize clinics using that vaccine because of its one-shot nature. So someone could be released before they could get their second dose if they did a clinic with Pfizer or Moderna, and that would complicate an incarcerated person getting the full regimen. You know, you're not going to report back to jail likely, and then you would have to report to the provider, uh, be it at a hospital or, or figuring. It just gets kind of complicated and messy. So The Allegheny County Jail began its Johnson & Johnson vaccine clinics with the Allegheny Health Network earlier this week, and then it had to postpone a second clinic it planned to hold because of the federal guidance to pause use of that vaccine. Back in Washington County, they've rescheduled their Johnson & Johnson clinic to use the Pfizer vaccine instead, unless federal agencies lift the temporary guidance before the clinic starts. 
And then elsewhere locally uh, in Beaver County, the Beaver County Jail hasn't been able to organize its first clinic, um, so it's still looking for a provider. It was hoping to use the Johnson & Johnson shot for the same reasons these other county jails want to, but at this point it's not been able to find someone to get vaccines into their population's arms. Um, None of the three jails I talked to have been able to get their own shipment of COVID-19 vaccines from the state. Thanks for your reporting, Kylie. Thanks, Liz. We'll be back with one last story you need to know about after another quick break. The Confluence goes beyond the headlines to introduce you to innovators and difference makers in the community and to engage in conversations about issues impacting our region, from education to social justice to government accountability. Join us for The Confluence, where the news comes together Monday through Thursday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. And last but not least, we've got WESA reporter Kate Giamarisi on the line to talk about what happened in the affordable housing world this week. Hey, Kate. Hi, Liz. So what did you cover this week? Well, I covered several things, um, one of which was a big report about evictions in Allegheny County. I also covered a lawsuit before the state Supreme Court involving the city of Pittsburgh and a group representing landlords. And I also covered some ongoing issues with our state's unemployment system. All right. So I really want to dig into this Supreme Court case that you've been following for several years now, right? Lay this out for us. This case involves an ordinance that was passed by the city of Pittsburgh in 2015. So yes, I have been covering this for a number of years. The ordinance requires landlords to not discriminate based on source of income. And source of income refers to housing choice vouchers, which are commonly called Section 8 vouchers. A voucher is something that lets a tenant pay about a third of their income in rent, and it's the remainder is subsidized by the federal government. Part of why the city passed this ordinance is because individuals who have these vouchers oftentimes can't use them. They can't find a landlord that's willing to take them, um, or the landlords who will take them are limited to certain high poverty areas. The Apartment Association of Metropolitan Pittsburgh, which is a group that represents landlords, sued uh, pretty much right away after the ordinance was passed and the law has never really been in effect. What are the arguments that the city of Pittsburgh is making and the argument that the landlords challenging the law are making? So neither party would speak to me, uh, but from reading their legal briefs, the city is basically arguing Preventing discrimination is a way to make the city more affordable, more livable for everyone, and also that discrimination against voucher holders is often a proxy for racial discrimination. They also point out there's other cities and other counties that have enacted these types of protections. The Apartment Association has argued requiring landlords to participate in what is supposed to be a voluntary program is basically too much of a regulatory burden on their businesses. And in their court briefs, they outline a lot of the regulations that they say they would have to uh, abide by that would be imposed on them if this law were to be in effect. Do you have a sense of why some landlords don't want to take housing choice vouchers? What a lot of the legal briefs have highlighted are sort of what I guess you could call the red tape and the regulation that is associated with this program. If you are a landlord who participates in the program, there's some rules and requirements around your lease. 
There's also some sort of background checks that you as a landlord kind of have to submit to. There's there's just a lot more regulation that you have to deal with as a landlord. Now, I will say, you know, some landlords like the program and they say there is, you know, more of a guarantee of income than a market rate tenant who's not participating in the program. But, you know, mainly the thing that the Apartment Association has really highlighted here is the level of regulation that a lot of landlords would just prefer to not to have to deal with. Can you help me understand why this city law was vulnerable to being challenged in the first place? Well, without getting too legal here, my understanding is that state law restricts how much cities can regulate businesses. How many people could this impact? There are about 5,400 vouchers in use in the city of Pittsburgh, according to the Housing Authority. You know, I think potentially were this law to be upheld, it could conceivably impact every residential landlord. Oh, wow. That's a lot of people. I want to circle back, if you if you will, into the um, housing report that you talked about at the top that um, the Pittsburgh Foundation released this week. What did that report find? So that report looked at eviction filings in Allegheny County. And prior to the pandemic, there had been about 13,000 eviction filings in Allegheny County every year. Uh, That number was pretty steady. They also found that in 2019, the average amount that a renter owed when they were taken to court was about $2,000, although that amount climbed every single year in the period the researchers looked at, which was between about 2012 and 2019. I think also the report really emphasized that, number one, we don't quite have as much data as I think we would like because those numbers concern eviction filings. Not every filing turns into an eviction. There's also a lot of demographic information that the filings can't tell us. The report also really emphasized that evictions themselves can be very harmful, but even just also the filing can be harmful, particularly for the tenants, for any future housing that they're seeking. And the report also proposed a number of sort of solutions to try to bring some of those numbers down in terms of taking folks to court. Kate, thanks for your reporting this week. Thank you so much. That's the show for this week. Pittsburgh Explainer is produced by Katie Blackley. Our editor is Lucy Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week. Thank you.